0: You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Astounding Stories 19, July 1931 Chapter 22 The Chase to the End of the World The giant mechanism, fashioned in the guise of a man, lay dying. Yet not that, for it never had had life. It lay deranged, out of order. His intricate cycle was still operating, but faintly, laboriously, jangling out of tune. Every moment, his internal energy was lessening. It seemed to want to talk. The beams of his eyes rolled wildly. It said, You did this to me. I came back here frightened because I knew that you were still controlling me. You hear me? There was a muffled rumble and blur. Then its voice clicked on again. When Tew came I opened the door to him, even though the girl tried to stop me, and I was humbled before Tew. But he was angry because I had released you. He deranged me. I tried to fight him, and he ripped open my side port. I thought the mechanism had gone inert. From within, it was complete silence. Larry murmured, "Good Lord, this is gruesome." Then the faint rasping voice started again. "Arranged me, and about you, he—a blur." Then again, "You, he is, you, he is." It went into a dull repetition of the three words, ending in a rumble which died into complete silence. The red radiance from the eye sockets faded and vanished. The thing we had called Migul seemed gone. There was only this metal shell, cast to represent a giant human figure, lying here with its operating mechanisms out of order, smashed. I stood up. That's the end of it. Mary Atwood's gone. With you in the time cage, Larry exclaimed. Tina, can't we follow them? Tina interrupted. Come on. No, you two wait here. I will go upstairs and verify if the time cage is gone. She came back in a moment. The laboratory overhead was fortunately deserted of robots. Larry and I had not thought of that. The cage is gone, Tina exclaimed. Miguel told us the truth. We hastened back through the tunnel past the guard, up into the palace and into the garden. My heart pounded in my throat for fear that Tina's time cage would have vanished, but it stood dimly glowing under the foliage where she had left it. A young man rushed up to us and said, Princess Tina, look there! A great row of coloured lights sailed slowly past overhead. The mid was here, circling over the city. The storm had abated. It had rained only for a brief time. Crazy winds were subsiding. The Mikrad was using its deranging ray. We could hear the thrum of it. It sent out vibrations which threw the internal mechanisms of the robots out of adjustment, and they were dropping in their tracks all over the city. It was afterward found that many of the robots, heedless of the rain as they ran about the city, intent upon their murderous work, had exploded by getting too wet. It chanced as momentarily we stood there at the entrance to the time-cage while the great airliner swept by that the top of the nearby laboratory was visible through the trees. We saw a white search beam from the Mikrad come down and disclose a group of robots on the laboratory roof. Then the spreading beam of the deranging ray struck them and they stood an instant transfixed, stricken with wildly flailing arms. Then one toppled and fell, then another... Two rushed together, locked in each other's grip, desperately fighting because of some crazy deranged thought impulse. They swayed and tore at each other until both wilted and sank, inert. Another tottered with jerky steps to the edge of the roof and plunged headlong, crashing with a great metal clatter to the stone paving of the ground. The young man who had joined us dashed into the palace. We heard his shouts, "'The revolt is over! The revolt is over!' This had been a massacre similar to Tugh's vengeance upon the New York City of 1935, just as senseless. Both, from the beginning, were equally hopeless of ultimate success. Tugh could not conquer this time world, so now he had left it, taking Mary Atwood with him. We hastened into the time cage. Larry and I braced ourselves for the shop as Tina slid the door closed and hurried to the controls. Within a moment, we were flashing off into the great stream of time. You think he has gone forward into the future? Larry asked. Won't the instrument show anything, Tina? No, no trace of him yet. We were passing 3000 AD, travelling into the future. Tina reasoned that you, according to Hull's confession, had originally come from a future time world. It seemed most probable that now he would return there. The time telespectroscope so far had shown us no evidence of the other cage. Tina kept the telescope barrel trained constantly on that other space five hundred feet from us, which held Chew's vehicle. The flowing grey landscape off there gave no sign of our quarry, yet we knew we could not pass it without at least a brief flash of it in the telespectroscope and upon the image mirror. Nervously, breathlessly, we waited for a sign of the other time-cage. But nothing showed. We were not travelling fast. With Larry and Tina at the instrument table, I was left to stand at the window. Always, I gazed eastward. That other little point of space, only 500 feet to the east, held Mary. She was there, but not now. She was remote, inaccessible. The thought of her with Chu, so inaccessible, set me shuddering. I was barely aware of the changing grey outlines of the city. I stared, praying for the fleeting glimpse of a spectral cage. I think that up to 3000 AD, New York remained much the same. And then, quite suddenly, in some vast storm or cataclysm, it was gone. I saw but a blurred chaos. This was near 4000 AD, and it was rebuilt, smaller. With more trees growing about, until presently there seemed only a forest. People, if they still were here, were building such transitory structures that I could not see them.
1: 5000 AD.
0: Mankind, no doubt, had reached its peak of civilization, paused at the summit, and now was in decadence, reverting to savagery. Perhaps in Europe the civilized peak lasted longer. This was a backward space during the ascent perhaps now, it was reverting faster to the primitive. But I think that by 15,000 AD, mankind over all the earth had become primitive. There is no standing still. We must go forward, or back. Man, with his own machine softening him, enabling him to do nothing, eventually unfitted himself to cope with nature. The storm at 4,000 AD in New York, for instance, even in my own time would have been merely an incentive to reconstruct upon a greater scale. But the men of 4,000 AD could not do that. At the year 10,000 AD, with a seemingly primeval forest around us, Tina, Larry and I held an anxious consultation. We had anticipated that Jew would stop in his own time world. That might have been around 3,000 or 4,000, but we hardly thought, as we viewed the scene in passing, he should have come originally from beyond 4,000. He was too civilised. She had not stopped. He had to be still ahead of us, so our course was to follow. Wherever he stopped, we would see him. If he turned back and flashed past us, that too would be evident. But if, from 2,930, he had gone into the past, and then suddenly we glimpsed the other cage, it was ahead of us, travelling more slowly and retarding as though about to stop. A grey, unbroken forest was here. The time was about 12,000 AD. Tina saw it first through the little telescopic barrel. Then it showed on the mirror grid, a faint, ghostly barred shape, thin as gossamer. We even saw it presently through the window. It held its steady position, level with us hanging solid amid the melting, changing grey outlines of the forest trees. They blurred it as they rose and fell. This chased through time. The two cages sped forward with the grey panorama whirling around them. and all the scene, only that other cage, to us, is real. Yet it was the cages which were apparitions. We gathered at our eastward window to gaze across the void of that 500 feet. The interior of Chew's cage was not visible to us. A little window, a thinner patch in the lattices of the cage side fronted us, but nothing showed in it. We were so helpless. Only 500 feet away, Chew cage was there, now. Yet we could do nothing save hold our time-changing rate to conform with it. Of course, Chew saw us. He was making no effort to elude us, and neither cage was running at its maximum. For hours I stood gazing, praying that Mary might be safe, striving with futile fancy to guess what might be transpiring within that cage, speeding side by side with us in the blurred shadows of the corridors of time. And again, as so many times before, I was balked, guessing Chu's motives for his actions. He knew we could not assail him unless he stopped, but to what destination was he going? It was a chase to our consciousness of the passing of time, which lasted several hours. Tew altered his time rate and sped more swiftly. My heart sank, for this showed he was not preparing to stop. We lost our sight of the other cage several times as it drew ahead of us, but it was always visible on the image mirror. I think, Tina said finally, that we should stay behind it. When he retards to stop, We'll have a better opportunity of landing simultaneously with him. We passed 100,000 AD. The forest went down, and it seemed that only rocks were here. A barren vista was visible off to the river and the distant sea. The familiar confirmations of the sea and the land were changed. There was a different shoreline. It was nearer at hand now, and it was creeping closer. I stared at the blurred grey surface of water at the wide, undulating stretch of rock. We came to one million AD, a million years into my future. Ice came briefly and vanished again, but there were no trees springing into life on this barren landscape. I could not fancy that even the transitory habitations of humans were here in this cold desolation. Were we headed for the end? I could envisage a dying world, this internal fire's cooling. Ten million years, then a hundred million. The grey scene, blended of dark nights and sunshine days, began changing its monochrome. There were fleeting alternating intervals now, when it was darker, and then lighter with a tinge of red. The Earth's rotation was slowing down. Through thousands of centuries the change had been proceeding, but only now could I see the lengthening days and nights. Perhaps now the day was a month long, and the night the same. A billion years! One billion AD! By now the day and the year were of equal length, and it chanced that this western hemisphere faced the sun. I could see the sun now, motionless above the horizon. The scene was dull red. The sun painted the rocks and the sullen sea of blood. A shout from Larry whirled me round. George! Good God! He was bending over the image mirror. Tina, ghastly pale, with utter horror stamped upon her face, sprang for the controls. On the mirror I caught a fleeting glimpse of Tew's cage, wrecked and broken, and instantly gone. It's stopped, Larry shouted. Good God, It stopped all at once. It was wrecked, smashed. We reeled. I all but lost consciousness with the shock of our own abrupt retarding. Our cage stopped and turned back. Tina located the wreckage and stopped again. We slid the door open. The outer air was deadly cold. The sun was a huge dull red ball hanging in the haze of a grey sky. The rocks were grey-black, the blood-light of the sun upon them. Five hundred feet from us, by the shore of an oily, sullen sea, the wreckage of Tew's cage was piled in a heap. Near it, the crumpled white figure of Mary, lay on the rocks. Beside her, still with his black cloak around him, Crouched Tew. End of chapter 22